0: Awesome. All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on this cozy, sleepy morning. Um, I hope you're awake. If you're not, I think I'm kind of juiced, so you'll wake up soon. Um, okay, flip to Acts chapter 27. This is our second to last sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to cover this morning Paul's journey to Rome. Uh, the title of this sermon is Crisis and Christian Character. Uh, we're going to read a fair amount of verses. We're going to read all of twenty-seven and into uh, chapter twenty-eight, verse sixteen, and we're going to read it as we go. Um, going to be ten quick points on Christian character this morning. So you know, you'll wake up eventually. Some of these points, um, and I just wanted to mention: um, we don't really do like topical sermons. We see value in, in, for the most part, working through a book of the Bible verse by verse, but occasionally as we do that, it, um, the, the structure of the chapter itself lends itself to a topical sermon in a sense. So this sermon, as we read through it, we're going to be specifically highlighting Christian character uh, as displayed in the Apostle Paul, and so it'll be really practical, which is helpful for us um, So I'm gonna pray for us and then we will get into the word of God together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect, that it is food for our soul. We thank you, Lord, that this morning we are not gathered around any human ideas or even human values or human wisdom, but this is the word of God. And uh, the only thing worth being heard this morning is what you have revealed to us in scripture. And so Holy Spirit, as you inspired and, and breathed this uh, story into life as it's given to us, would you, would you make, it, make us alive this morning by the power of your word? Help us to see, give us eyes to see what you've revealed in your word? Would you uh, wake us up, Lord? Would you um, graciously uh, correct us in ways that we're we're pursuing what the world would pursue instead of Christ-like character? And above all, would you glorify Jesus? Would you um, lead us to worship, to see Jesus clearly, to behold Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us? That though we were lost and sinners, you, Jesus, came after us like a good shepherd, and you laid your life down for us, that we could be rescued, and I'll walk with you and grow with you and be made and formed into the image of Jesus. So please, Holy Spirit, speak your word. Make it alive to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this this text this morning is, is a true it's a true story, and it's, it really is like an adventure story. This is, like, this is a true adventure story. We know some of the most uh, beloved human stories are adventure stories. Maybe you guys went to go see Avengers this weekend. Some of our most beloved fiction are adventure, like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. Even like, you know, we just love travel, like space, like Apollo 13 or Star. Like, we just love this sense of adventure and this morning, we're we're seeing Paul travel over a thousand miles. Uh, we're going to see him with uh, almost three hundred others lost at sea in a hurricane. We're going to see a shipwreck. We're going to see them strand like stranded on this island that none of them have been to. We're going to see snake bites and sickness and supernatural healing. And what I love is this is a true this is a true story. This really happened in history. You can go visit. St. Paul's Bay on Malta Island, which we will read of. Uh, Historians point out the amount of detail in in this story is unbelievable. One one author said this, there is no no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. Nothing else compares to the detail of how an an ancient ship worked than this chapter. In chapter 27, 28, like nowhere else will you find this amount of detail. This is history. This really happened. But we also have to remember as we approach this story that it's more than just history. It's the word of God. It's God breathed. The spirit was with Luke as he recorded and wrote down this story, which is why we're going to spend... 45 or so minutes reading it this morning because this is the word of God. We know that this story, as we read history in the word of God, it's, it's useful for your life to teach you, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be mature and equipped. So we are gonna, we're going to be uh, equipped this morning as we read this story. And, and as I said, we're going to specifically look at it through the lens of Christian character. Uh, so let's read the first three verses together. This is kind of like the prelude of the story. We're getting set up, the characters and all that. So let's just read. I'm reading out of the NIV. We'll read the first three verses to start. Chapter 27 says this. When it was decided that we would, set, would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adriamatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Now, remember uh, the context here Paul's a prisoner. He's been in prison for over two years. He's not even convicted. He appealed to Caesar. He was granted that. So he's going to Rome to stand before Caesar to testify about his case. And he's finally going. Like he's finally on a ship headed to Rome. And, and interestingly enough, the first bit of Christian character that we see in this story is one that we would most likely miss on our first reading or second or third. It took me a while. Um, and that's actually the point. Notice the we language. Did any of you notice that? Raise your hand if you noticed. It said we. Yeah, a couple. See, like two of us would have noticed that. We language. Um, who is this we? Well, first of all, it's Luke, who's the author. And then he mentions in verse two, this man named Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We, we read of uh, Aristarchus earlier. We know that he is a disciple of Jesus and he often uh, accompanied Paul and so the we language is Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. Now, now hear this. This is crazy. The only way that Luke and Aristarchus would have been allowed to accompany a prisoner to Rome, historians point out, is if they were Paul's slaves. See, you couldn't just like go on death row. With, you couldn't just go with a prisoner and just hang out with them. You had to be actually their slaves to go with them. And so what it seems is that Luke and Aristarchus literally sold themselves into slavery to Paul so that they could go with Paul on this journey to Rome. And that's the first bit of Christian character we see in this text, that, that, that Christian character draws attention to Jesus and not to ourselves, right? Like Luke and Aristarchus are mentioned so briefly and then it's just like you would miss them. And that's the point. Luke is not the point of this story. Aristarchus isn't the point. Even Paul isn't the point. They are simply willing to be like minor characters to accompany Paul on his mission to Rome. This is like John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease, but Jesus must increase. We true mature Christians are willing to be minor characters in the great story that is about Jesus that Jesus and his mission, building his church, is why we exist, and our lives are to be for his glory. We're willing to be slaves of Jesus. We talk a lot about freedom, uh, because we're Americans, but the Bible talks a lot about service and slavery to Jesus. We are willing to even be the slaves, the bondservants of Jesus, as Paul so often referred to himself, so that Jesus would get glory. That yes, we have a unique place for our gifting and our abilities and our personalities and our obedience. Yes, we have a place as Luke had a place, as Aristarchus had a place, but it's all for the story and name and glory of Jesus. That's what Luke and Aristarchus were all about. And so they were willing to, like, they didn't know how the story was going to go, but they were willing to follow Paul. And that actually points us to the second thing about Christian character, which is this. Christian character is compelling to follow. Because do you know who was a man of true Christian character was Paul. Paul was a leader who was like Jesus. And and Luke and Aristarchus saw in Paul's life something worth following. They were willing to follow Paul to Rome as his slaves because Paul was following Jesus. These men weren't, listen, this is crazy. They weren't getting paid to go. They weren't ordered to go. Paul didn't say, guys, you have to come with me. Like you're on the church staff. Come on, let's go. These men were simply loyal to Paul because they saw the hand of God on his life. They saw that he had a calling and a a mission to fulfill. And they, they wanted to follow this man. They were willing to follow him. And it's the same with Jesus. Think about it. We're compelled to follow a man who died on a cross. Said, if you want to, come after me. You got to die to yourself. Like, why do we follow Jesus who died and says, come die? Because it's compelling. Because the kingdom of God is compelling. Because we know it's, it's, we were created to live for more than our own story, more for, than our own glory, more even than our own health or money or ease. We want to follow Jesus where we find eternal life and true joy and, and true purpose, so we see these, this as, as the characters are getting started. Now, we're going to read verses 4 through 12, and we actually have a map we're going to put up on screen, and as we read through these verses, you'll be able to like follow along. So we can put up that map real quick. I know it's kind of small. Um, bottom right is Jerusalem. Right above that is Caesarea. That's where they're starting, and it's going to mention they sail to Sidon, and then they go on the inside of that island there, Cyprus. Uh, And the way these boats were designed is to, they were designed to like hug the coast. These weren't like open ocean vessels. And so they, they, they go up to Cyprus, it goes to Myra, and then they get up to that place, I don't know how you say that, Sinaitis, and then they went down to Crete. And then we're gonna see that giant loop was not how it was supposed to go, but that's what they did. They landed on Malta and then eventually they made their way up to Rome. So as we read, you can kind of follow the journey that they were on. So let's read verses four through 12 together. It says this, from there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sealing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion Instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Okay, now a few more points to notice here. Um, so, so we already get this sense like the journey's not going to plan. They're losing time. Luke mentions the day of atonement had already passed, which puts them like early October. Uh, In that that region of the world, you you wouldn't sail uh, past November because there would be crazy storms. And so you kind of knew like November was the end. You didn't want to be sailing in November. And Paul's pointing it out. Guys, uh, I wouldn't recommend us moving on. In fact, uh, I forgot this. We forget how well-traveled Paul is before this journey. Paul had had 11 voyages on the Mediterranean Sea. Paul had been traveling on a ship 11 times in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, he's, he's put in 3,500 miles before this journey. Um, one, one commentator pointed out that it's, it's quite certain that Paul was the most experienced traveler on board that ship. There's a chance Paul had literally put in more miles than the captain of that ship. Paul knew what he was talking about, and yet, as it says, the centurion and the captain ignore Paul's advice. They kind of just want to get going. They've already lost times. They've already lost time, and so Paul's ignored, and he's outvoted, and um, and so Paul's just kind of like put in his place. You're just a prisoner, and they move on. But I want to point this out: by the end of this journey. Paul is literally leading the ship. He's like in charge, spiritually and practically. He's giving orders to sailors and they listen to him. He's the leader and the encourager and the one voice of sanity and reason, which is like, how does that happen? Because right here, they're like, what do you know, Paul? What what are you talking about? You don't don't know what you're talking about. But by the end of this this journey, Paul is leading the ship. And, and it's just important to recognize that in the, the course of this journey and the crisis that ensues, Paul's character rose to the surface and, and people looked to Paul because of who he was in Christ and they saw something worth following, which, which is our third point. Uh, this is so important. This is so important for us today. Our third point on Christian character is this. Christian character isn't motivated by position and power. Paul wasn't seeking to take over the ship. Paul wasn't trying to be in charge. He was, in fact, at this moment, in, when he gave his advice, he was a prisoner. Uh, earlier this year, Travis shared with me an article that literally changed my life, one of the best articles I've ever read. It was about what makes Christian character. And, and one, <coughs> one way the author described Christian character is this, which could be another, point, another way of saying this point. Christian character is always bigger on the inside, when you, when you meet a Christian who's like Jesus, on the outside, like Paul, you're like, you're just this prisoner. We're not going to listen to you. Who are you? But, but on the inside, it's like, this, you can't believe who this person is and what they're like. Christians who are like Jesus, on the outside, look unassuming. They look humble. They look ordinary. But the more you get to know them the more comes out, the more beauty and depth and grace and Christ-likeness comes out of them. Because they're not living, we live in a culture that lives for the outside, that lives for position and power. And we think if we could only achieve this external status, then we will make it. But Christians literally do the opposite. We live for the secret inner place with the Lord. This is why David was such a crazy choice to be king. This is why Saul was such a natural choice. He was taller than everybody and everybody loved him. He, he was a, a, a person of the people. But when Samuel was sent to choose and anoint David, it says this in 1 Samuel 16, seven, look what it says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This ship was looking at the outward appearance of Paul. They weren't impressed. But as the journey would ensue, Paul's character would rise to the surface. Paul begins with no status, no position, and no influence, but his character was bigger than his position. Hear that, so important. His character was bigger than his position and that character and godliness and trust in Jesus like revealed itself in a time of testing and crisis. And as just as a leadership aside, true leadership isn't gained by a title, but by character. A true leader isn't the person with the title, it's the person everybody's following. That's a leader. It's not truly about status or position or power. Yet we long for position, even in the church, right? Like when you read, my wife was pointing this out as we're reading through the gospels right now. It's amazing how often the disciples talk about status and who's the greatest and who can get position and who's gonna get greater power and a better seat in the kingdom. And isn't it funny that we haven't changed at all? We are the same way in the church. We want position and titles to be noticed, and we think that the, what the, my day is gonna come when I finally get my position and, and I finally get my title and then I will rise to the occasion. But the Bible actually says it's the opposite. That those who are faithful with a little are the ones who are entrusted with more. That those who are faithful with little, often they rise above their position and they're just faithful and they're used powerfully by God. You remember Joseph who was a slave? and then in prison, and then was raised up by God to lead a nation. And remember David, as we just saw, the forgotten shepherd who was anointed king and killed a giant. And remember Jesus, think about Jesus. Jesus spent 30 years walking around like he was a regular human. Just think about that. Like God was walking around for 30 years and people just were like, oh yeah, that's that's just some guy. That's how God, that's how Jesus lived 30 years of his life. He's just some guy. He was literally sustaining the universe. But they're like, oh yeah, it's Jesus, son of Joseph. Yeah, I think he makes tables or something. Like he was a regular man and he didn't walk around as a teenager like, do you know who I am? I'm Jesus. Like if Jesus lived that way, his character was so much bigger than what people thought. If Jesus could live that way, Should not the followers of Jesus live that way? This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 2, which Tyler ran. Look at Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have this mind, the same mind among yourselves, which is yours, it's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If that's Jesus, then we too should have that same mind among ourselves. We shouldn't be bitter about our current position or status, uh, honestly, if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as I'm just a barista. I'm just helping in the parking lot. I'm just a mom. I'm just this or that. Christians who are like Jesus, who have like they're living, they, they have like have eternal life and the Spirit of God in them, and yet they humble themselves and they serve people. And what's amazing is God actually blesses that. And, and the Bible says, humble yourself and, and then God will exalt you. Like Paul was exalted in this story. He becomes the leader, but he becomes so through his countless humble service, even as he's like, he's literally going to be like, guys, I told you you should have listened to me. You didn't listen to me. But he continues to serve them. It's the same for us, that we should be bigger on the inside. than than what we look like and our status and our position on the outside. And and so we see uh, Paul's influence at the moment doesn't win out. And verse 12 is kind of like foreboding. It's like the majority decided we should sail on. So here we go. Uh, Now let's read verses 13 to 26. And we can keep the map up again while we read, just if you want to visualize what's happening. So let's read verses 13 to 26. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the winds. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Cy... I don't know how you say that. Cyritus, Cyterus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So things obviously get bad, like as worst case scenario. And the storm Paul predicted had come, and they, it's crazy. They, they are doing every effort they can. They, they tie ropes under the ship to hold it together so that as it just gets battered by the waves, hopefully it doesn't break up. Uh, they, they're literally enduring a hurricane, which I've never endured. I've been in California my whole life. Maybe some of you know what that is. I've heard it's bad. They are enduring a hurricane on a wooden ship with no engine, and they're in just the middle of the Mediterranean Sea in a hurricane, okay? Uh, one pastor put it like this. Only those who have been in a violent storm at sea can fully appreciate the terror the passengers and crew must have felt. The towering, white-capped seas, the roaring of the wind, the violent rocking of the ship as first the bow, then the stern rose high in the air, only to plunge quickly down again, the constant motion inducing seasickness and making it difficult to stand, let alone walk, the wind-driven salt spray stinging and blinding those exposed on the deck, and worst of all, the looming reality of an awful death by drowning." All those factors combined to unnerve even the most experienced sailor. And so as verse 20 says, they literally gave up all hope of being saved. They were just holding on to the ship, rocking back and forth for days, not eating with no hope, just waiting to die. And in this moment of despair, we see Paul... And his Christ like character shine through. Paul doesn't spend time asking God, like I would God, why is this happening? All I try to do is serve you. I'm going to Rome as a prisoner to testify, and like we have to do this on the way. Like I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm gonna die. Like, why, God? Paul doesn't despair like the rest of them. And Paul not only accepts the storm, he not only endures the storm, he bears fruit in the storm. He like bears fruit. He's ministering to people in the storm. He's on the same boat. He's probably been throwing up with everybody else. He's in the same scenario as everyone, but he stands up. And like Jesus, in the storm, begins to minister to people. And we see five things about Christian character in these verses. And the next one we see is this. Christian character doesn't sink under the waves of the storm, but like Jesus, walks on them. Now, let's be honest. Uh, That is true. Most of us just don't quite have that Christ-like character yet in us. And so we don't always walk on the waves. We're probably more like Peter. Who is like kind of walking on the waves, like, oh, I'm with Jesus, this is awesome. And then you get overwhelmed and you sink. That's probably most of us, but that's because Christ or Peter wasn't formed, he wasn't fully mature into Christ's image. But we actually see a man who is so shaped and formed by his relationship with Jesus that, like Jesus, he is, he is walking, so to speak, on the storm. He is ministering to those around him. And Paul is demonstrating the mature Christian character that he himself and others wrote about. I'm just gonna read us four verses in the New Testament that testify to this fact, that this is possible for those who walk with Jesus, okay? Uh, First, Romans chapter five, verses three through five says this, I'll just be honest, these verses hurt and I don't love them because I haven't yet matured to be like Christ, but these verses are true. And these verses are what the process of being formed into the image of Jesus looks like. So let's, let's be stung by the sharp word of God of, of what we should be like in our storms, okay? Here we go. Not only that, but we rejoice, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then a few chapters later in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 1 Peter chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to not, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God says to us about our storms of life that they produce character and endurance. Man, do you know how Paul got this way? He's been through a lot of storms before this. Paul had been through many storms and had experienced the shaping and the character and the molding of God. And so when another storm came, he was, he was more prepared to minister to others. Storms produce hope in us because, because where else would these people be hoping right now? But God, like literally, they, what else can they do? They are lost at sea in a hurricane. They've thrown the cargo overboard. They've tied the boat up with, with ropes. Like, that's pretty much it. Now, they're hoping in God. Your storms in your life are designed by God so that you would put your hope in God. And, and this is crazy, but the Bible says storms don't, the worst of storms don't even compare with the glory awaiting you when you see Jesus. The Bible says storms shouldn't surprise us. We're told by Jesus and Paul to expect storms. Storms allow us, as we read, to share in Christ's suffering. As Christ said, pick up your cross and follow me, storms are that. Like we're sharing in Christ's suffering as we are in storms, and storms aren't the final word. Paul says they're momentary and they prepare us for heaven. Storms wean us off of this world and get our hope in things that, that are unseen and are eternal. Because if your hope is in anything else, anything else that can be seen, like it's going to pass away. And so storms are given to us by God to wean us off of the world and teach us to put our hope in unseen and eternal things. And Paul actually believed these things and was sustained in his storm. And not only that, as we said, Paul bore fruit in the storm, which is the next point, Christian character encourages others in the storm. Like, it's so easy to be, so focused on ourselves in our storms and just survival. But, but to be like Jesus and to be like Paul who was following Jesus was is to be able to even encourage someone else as you are in the same storm they are in. That we would be shaped and sustained in such a way that we could be okay and even fruitful. Like Like things like ministering to others who have cancer when you're at chemotherapy, stuff like that, stuff like I'm in the same storm as they are in, but I'm able by the power of God to minister to others. That's what Christian character does to us. And so we see Paul say three three times in these verses, "I, I urge you to keep up your courage, Keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. And this says, they were all encouraged. Paul was able, because he was shaped to be like Jesus, to encourage the very people who rejected him. And if they hadn't rejected him, they wouldn't even be in the situation. Like, think about that. And he even kind of says it, right? And honestly, the commentator's like, yeah, maybe he's being, you know, I told you so, mate, we're not sure. Kind of fits with Paul's character. But even still, he ministers and encourages to them. And just think about this. Think about how good it would be to have been in Paul's boat, right? Like, if, if I'm going to be suffering in a storm, lost to sea with anyone, it, it'd be nice to have Paul there stepping up, encouraging me, telling me to have faith in God. And, and these unbelieving sailors, for all accounts that we know, uh, there are three believers and hundreds of unbelievers. They were blessed And encouraged and even rescued because of the presence of a godly man in their boat. Think about that. Think about the the blessing we should be to, to those who don't even know Jesus around us. Think about the encouragement we should bring to others in the storms because we know Jesus. Because Jesus is, so to speak, in our boat, sustaining us. Like the disciples when the storm was going, Jesus is just sleeping, like fully not stressed out. He's right now seated on his throne. He's not overwhelmed at your life in your storm because we have that Jesus. Think about how we can bless others in, in, in their storms. Think about the people you work with and live next to. Think about the blessing we should be to those around us in suffering. And then we also see this. Christian character is sustained by intimacy with God. We see Paul still still himself meeting with God, being ministered to by God. As he even said last night, he's basically like last night I spent time with the Lord and like I'm gonna be okay and I wanna encourage you. And, and in the middle, hear this, this is so important. Listen to what God says to you about your storms, listen to these two verses. These are prayers, the uh, first one prayer of, of David in Psalm 61. Do we have that? Yeah. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And then again, Psalm 18.10, also David. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Paul is displaying, as David so often did, that in the middle of storms, we are sustained by intimacy with God, by meditating on his promises, by, by literally spending time with him. Like, you guys... Your quiet times will literally sustain you in storms. They are, as impo- they are more important than a lifeboat in the middle of a storm. They literally are what will keep you going. Like the discipline of, of rising early, God help us, and being with him, we don't know what's gonna come that day. Think about that. We don't know what diagnosis may come later that day We don't know what phone call may come. We don't know if we're going to make it to the end of the day, but we can be with Jesus and we can prepare and equip our souls for the storms of that day. And not just our own storms, but other storms. We don't know what people the Lord may bring into our life who will need to be encouraged and sustained. And that happens in our private time with the Lord before that moment. And, and I wanna read us one more verse. Um, let me read the verse and then I want us to notice something. One more, verse this is, if there is like any verse to know, it's this verse for storms. Isaiah 43, verse two. God says this to us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Let me just even, before I say anything, remind you, God said that to you. This is in the Bible. That's the authority of God to you. That's a promise of God to you for your storms. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know the only way this promise comes true is if God is sovereign in the storms? I, we've been saying this many times. I just have to say it again. Do you know the only way that promise comes true is if God is bigger than the fire and the waters and the floods? If God isn't sovereign, he cannot assure you of that promise. If God is nothing to do with the storms in your life, how do we know he's able to show up? How do we know? If God didn't see it coming, if God isn't powerful over nature, over waters and rivers and fires, we would be consumed. It is a lie that we are told that God had nothing to do with our storms. And it's, it's this false comfort. It's not comforting. God has to be bigger than the waters. God has to be bigger than the flames. He had to be bigger than the scenario Paul was in to show up and not lie when he says, Paul, don't worry, you're not gonna die. I know the future. I control the nature that you are stuck in. I'm with you. I'm not gonna let the rivers and the waters and the fires burn and consume you because I'm God. Because the wind and the waves still have to obey me. As they listen to Jesus, they still listen to Jesus in your life and in your storms. This is maybe a hard, harder, heavier truth to hear, but it's what sustains us in the storms. It, to use a shit metaphor, it's like ballast, in the ship. If you know about ballast, I don't really know about ships, I've heard this metaphor. If a ship doesn't have enough weight in it, it's just gonna tip over in a storm. God's sovereignty is like this weighty thing in the bottom of the ship that is us, that sustains us and it keeps the ship from tipping over. We don't know why God is allowing the storms. We can be mad at God for the storms. We can be frustrated with God as Job was. Even as Jesus on the cross felt fully forsaken by God, but we know he is sovereign and he is good. And though we cannot connect all the dots because we are not God, he is God. He is with us in the storms. Our time with the Lord in his word is what sustains us. And I just, I wanna say this one more time. What are you letting shape your thoughts and ideas about God and suffering, if not the words of Jesus and the words of the Bible? Where else would you go? What other person would you trust? And are they gonna be there for you in the storms? Because God is able and is with us in the storms. Next truth we see is Christian character believes the promises of God. It wasn't just enough for Paul to know these truths. Paul had to like by faith cling on to these truths. He had to like hold on to what the Bible said. What God told him, Paul, you're not going to die. I'm with you. Paul was like, I'm holding on to that. And that was the source of his ministry to others. Let me just say this. The source, the power of your ministry to someone else is the promises of God the source and the strength and the power and authority that we have to actually help and encourage someone are the promises of God, that we believe them and then we share them with other people. We trust God's promises. We trust them. And and the pattern is really interesting because the angel, what he assures Paul actually isn't new. This wasn't some new promise. This wasn't some new vision. This is the one God gave him back in chapter 23 that he's gonna to get to Rome. God just helped him out in the moment like, Paul, don't forget my promise. You're getting to Rome. Don't forget that, okay? That's, that was how the Lord ministered to him. Guess what? We have that same access as Paul did to the promises of God, to remember the old promises of God. We have that in the Bible. I know um, the desire, the longing we often have like, It'd be so nice though if an angel would just show up in like the worst moment and just say, hey, Psalm 23, don't forget it. Okay, see you later. And, and maybe he does, maybe he does. And maybe he has. Um, but but we, the promises are old promises. W- what new promise would we want from God? Like we have the promises of God in the word of God and we have this actually available to us in English, So we can understand the promises of God and lay hold of them and trust them and believe them in our storms. And even the gifts of prophecy that the Lord gives us are always submitted to the word of God. And do you know what typically the gifts of prophecy are just, hey, remember the promises of God. This is like what it is. This is what prophecy is. Hey, remember what God said. Oh yeah, okay, I gotta remember. Like we get this same pattern that Paul has in the promises of God. And so Paul believed them and he ministered to others around him and he was sustained in the storm. Now let's read uh, the shipwreck verses 27 to 44. Let's, Let's read what happens next. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea which, can we put up the map? So, you have that map Jim? Yeah, thanks. So, 14 days is that little loop right there, just in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, in a hurricane, two weeks. No technology, you know, no electricity, no, just, just no sun or stars, just 14 days. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, You cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all then he broke it and then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. "'Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea "'and at the same time untied the ropes "'that held the rudders. "'Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind "'and made for the beach. "'But the, the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. "'The bow stuck fast and would not move, "'and the stern was broken to pieces "'by the pounding of the surf. "'The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners "'to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping.' But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. It's just craziness, right? Like just abandon the ship, floating on pieces of wood, the ship's being broken up. Imagine the moment when... You're a sailor trying to sneak away and a soldier just cuts the rope. You're like, are you, are you serious? Like, this was a crazy scenario. And they, they actually all survived. They all made it. Now, um, two things here. The, again, I, I just want us to notice that last point. We see it again. Christian character believes the promises of God. Think about this. Christian character continues to believe the promises of God even when alternatives appear more attractive, right? Like the sailors were like, yeah, I know you said we're gonna be fine if we stay together, but like, there's a lifeboat, there's the land, thank you, Paul, thank you, God, but like, I'm good, let's go. And Paul's like, guys, you need to trust God. Don't, don't take this alternative that seems like it makes more sense. And you know what's amazing is like the ship trusted Paul as he trusted God and they were willing to do so. And because they did not a single, I don't know if this is like, uh, literally true or a a figure of speech, but it says not a hair of their head was lost. They made it. And then the, the, the next thing we see before we move on is this. I love this Christian character is spiritual and practical. I love that. Paul's like, guys, it's been two weeks. It's time to eat some food. I love that he cares enough to care for their souls and their bodies. And I, I just want to say this, like, to be like Jesus isn't just to be esoterically not human. Like, Jesus was a human being who knew he needed sleep and knew he needed food. And to be like Jesus, it's okay to, like, need a paycheck and to work hard and to eat food. Um, it's to, have, to be like Jesus isn't to just wander around saying, God's going to provide Uh, It's okay to be practical. Paul himself said, if someone's not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. Uh, And he's obviously referring to able-bodied people who like should be working. It's okay. It's Christ-like to work hard and be practical. Uh, I just love one commentator, John Stott. He's awesome. He basically taught us the book of Acts. You just didn't know that that's what we've been reading is John Stott. Uh, Look at this. Look at what he says here about the person of Paul. Here then are aspects of Paul's character which endear him to us as an integrated Christian who combines spirituality with sanity and faith with works. He believed that God would keep his promises and have the courage to say grace in the presence of a crowd of hard-bitten pagans. But his trust in godliness did not stop him seeing either that the ship should not take risks with the onset of winter or that the sailors must not be allowed to escape or that the hungry crew and passengers had to eat to survive. What a man. He was a man of God and of action, a man of the spirit and of common sense. I love that. That's that's what it is to be like Jesus. And, and, And I just want to say this, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we should be stupid, okay? That's what we see from Paul. God is sovereign doesn't mean just be stupid. Paul's like, yeah, you shouldn't like, sail in the middle of winter, and you should probably eat some food. God is sovereign, but we should be wise and shrewd as Jesus teaches us, as the book of Proverbs teaches us. Now, a few more things to see. We're going to read the last 10 uh, verses, or actually 16 verses, as they arrive on the island. Let's read those together. You guys alive with me? Word of God. Okay, okay. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official on the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to set sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Now, I just real quick, want us to notice this. Christian character serves not just God, but people. I love that Paul was busy picking up sticks in the rain. Like, this was maybe the most revered godly man in history besides Jesus, Like, think the Pope, think Billy Graham, out after a shipwreck, picking up sticks on the beach. Like, Paul is picking up sticks. If Paul could pick up sticks, surely we can serve people. If Jesus could wash dirty feet, sure. who are we? Surely we can serve one another. I love that about Paul. That's Christian character. Paul is doing what Jesus said. If you want to be great, serve, become the least, become as one who serves. He could have been like, I just saved all you guys. Make me a fire. He's picking up wood and then he gets bitten by a snake, side note. Like again, I would be like, are you serious, God? Like you're sovereign. I got bit by a snake. Like what are you doing? And I don't know exactly what's going through his mind, but he's just like, nah, just shakes it off and keeps on going. Everyone's just waiting like he's any second now, he's gonna die. And then eventually he, does, he doesn't die. And like, well, he must, he must be God. Um, and I wanna point this out. The, the people thought, surely this is justice. Another word for that's karma. Surely something bad just happened to Paul because he deserved it. If he just survived a shipwreck and got bit by a snake, like he did something wrong. We do not believe in karma. Paul was not bitten because he deserved it. Hear this, hear this fact. Paul was bitten by a snake because he was following Jesus. Paul was not bitten by a snake because he was a murderer. Paul was bitten by a viper after a shipwreck because he was faithfully following Jesus and serving others. Like that's the opposite of karma. Let me just serve Jesus, serve others, pick up fire sticks for a fire, I get bit by a snake that's Christianity let's pick up your cross and follow me it's gonna be hard sometimes but we know when we suffer it's not karma God isn't just mad at us he's not even hear this he's not always one for one like you know what Paul's a little proud the day before on the boat when he's told everyone, you should have listened to me. So just a quick little snake bite's gonna humble him. It's not one for one. Our suffering is not like, okay, you need X amount of character points, so you get X amount of suffering points. That's not the way God works. He is sovereign. He does use suffering to shape us. But sometimes you suffer because you're like Jesus. Jesus suffered because he was Jesus. He was perfect. Do you know why Job suffered? because he was the best human on the planet. God was like, have you considered Job? God was like, look at the best one I got. That's why Job got picked to suffer, because he was godly. Sometimes, it's not justice, it's not karma, we simply suffer because we're following Jesus. We just, this is part of following Jesus. Um, Now, let's read the last five verses together as they get to Rome for our last character point. It's this. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Petoli. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Uh, the last thing to notice here is this. Christian character receives encouragement from the people of God. Christians love other Christians. Christians find encouragement in being with and around other Christians. It says, at the sight of these people, he thanked God and was encouraged. He wasn't like, I made it to Rome. He was like, ah, like the brothers and sisters. And if Paul needed the body of Christ, so do we. So should we look for encouragement at one another's presence. As we read Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when we are together. It's better than any other earthly gift to be with the body of Christ where we find refreshment and encouragement. Now, I wanna close with this. There is only one Christian with Christ-like character and it's Jesus. He's the only perfect one. Paul was not like Jesus. Um, And and let, let us remember as we hear these practical things and I know by the power of the spirit, we were like, oh man, struck here, convicted here, um, that we, we, we need to remember that we need Jesus, not just to be like Jesus. We need Jesus and his blood because we have all failed. We have all failed in Christian character. Every one of us is not like Jesus in many ways, which is why we need Jesus, the blood of Jesus, shed for our sins, our inadequacies, our unchristlikeness. And and hear this, that blood of Jesus that washes over our sin is all that that grace of God, this is so important, is the same fuel that changes us to make us like Jesus. Okay? This is so important. The same grace and mercy, and power, and blood, and Holy Spirit that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, doesn't just leave us there. Say, now, don't be like Jesus for a week and come back and remember that. It says, you're forgiven. I love you. And now I'm filling you with more of my spirit and more of my word that you would grow to be more like me, that we are still clay in the potter's hand. And and, uh, part, this is theological and technical, but Part of salvation is the word sanctification. Part of salvation is sanctification. And sanctification is the process of being made like Jesus. The book of Hebrews says you are not saved if you are not becoming like Jesus. You just aren't. It says says none of us will see God without the holiness, without the holiness without which we will see the Lord. We don't earn our salvation, but if you are truly saved by Jesus, Listen, the blood of Jesus is so powerful, it cannot, will not leave you the way you are. It's, it's something else if you're not changing. You're believing in something else. The blood of Jesus, let me just like ask anybody, does the blood of Jesus change you? Does the blood of Jesus change any of our lives? Have any of you felt the power in your life that's the Holy Spirit and the word of God? Have any of you begun to despise that old sin? that used to look so good, anybody, literally anybody, can anybody testify like, yes, this is my life? The power of God that saves us from sin sanctifies us and changes us. And as we abide in Jesus and be near to Jesus, that, that attachment that, of that branch in the vine, like there's power there and you will bear fruit. Like you can't not bear, if you're not bearing fruit, you're not attached To the vine, because Jesus isn't a broken vine. Not a single person who belongs to Jesus is stronger than his power to change you, to make you more like Jesus. This this verse is a promise for you. Look at this verse in Philippians 1, verse 6. We have two, but I want us to notice this one first. Two may come up, that's fine. Look at the second one. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't start something and like, oh man, they are extra messed up, I'm moving on. (laughs) Jesus has never done that, will never do that. If Jesus started a work in you, be sure he's going to bring it to completion and make you like Jesus. And we see that metaphor again if, right before Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, walk in them. We are in that, like a piece of clay in God's hands being molded to be, made, to be like Jesus. Every one of us, every one of us. And and as difficult as it is, the Lord uses storms to do that work in us, to, to make us desperate for his promises and his presence and, and to put our hope in him and to wean us off of other things. And so as we, as we move into this time of worship, I think the first thing we should all do is take communion and remember that we need Jesus. Jesus. We need the forgiveness. We need that grace. We have all blown it. We have all been unlike Christ in many ways this week. And then as we worship and seek his face, as we abide, that, that we would ask the spirit to change us, to make us love the, the commands and character of God, to be more like him. Uh, so I'm gonna pray for us, and, and then let's do that together. Jesus, please, would you, would you make us like yourself? with the power of your word and your spirit and your presence right now uh, form us to be like Jesus. Would you work this character in our hearts, Lord? Any, any bits that are like the stubborn lump of clay in us? Thank you that your hands are stronger than that stubborn piece of clay and, and you are able to, to mold that uh, to something beautiful. A workmanship, masterpiece. Would you do that in each one of us, Lord? Those areas that are stubborn, those areas that don't want to trust you, that want to trust other wisdom or our, our, our own wisdom, would we sub- submit to your hand, Jesus? We submit to your good shepherding hand and trust that you are going to lead us in paths of righteous, righteousness for your namesake. Holy Spirit, if there are any here who... Um, have not yet put their trust and their faith and their hope in you, Jesus, would you lead them to do so? Would you make them born again and to see the beauty of Jesus, that, that though they have sinned, that there is hope for them because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus, you came for those who are lost. Would would the beauty of the gospel just overwhelm us again, that you, you died, you humbled yourself, you faced all the, the punishment we deserve for our sin on the cross that, that we could be forgiven and, and now we get to commune with you, Lord, and be with you and be shaped to be more like you. Do a, a deep, deep work right now, God, even as we worship. Would we um, not just leave, not just move on? Please, Lord, would the enemy not steal any of these seeds, but would they just be deeply implanted to our hearts? You make us more like yourself, Jesus. Also, to encourage us, church, we're going to have a prayer team up here who um, would love to pray for you, um, shepherd you through anything that you may have questions about, and, and even they're available for confessing of sin. We we should repent of our sin to Jesus, but then there's power in confession. Um, and I would I would even encourage you to come up to them and, and to do that. And then we have carpets here; we have space all around to worship, as the Bible says, which is kneeling and dancing and shouting and bowing and clapping. And, um, so let's, let's pursue Jesus together. Let's abide in him together as he makes us more like him.